some of you have possibly heard um, part of what I want to say this morning before, but it doesn't hurt to revise. Um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 9 and the uh, verse 24 through to verse 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. I've used this image before, but if I was approached by the British Olympic Committee to run the marathon in the next games, first of all, I would be blown away. Secondly, I would be terrified because running 43 points, whatever it is, kilometers, I have a mini miles, 26 miles? 26.2. Yeah, okay. It's not that easy. Ask those who've done it. And the essence of it is that I have two options before me. The one is that I can carry on the way that I am now and live in the way and means and manner that I am now. Or I can prepare myself in some way. Marnie's just written a uh, hundred miles weekend before last. He did it in around about five hours, which I think is an incredible feat. But he didn't just decide on that Sunday morning to pick up his bike and ride a hundred miles. He planned, he prepared, he organized his life around that principle of that was what he was wanting to achieve. And I've said this before, and I will say it again in the future, because I think, for me, this is probably one of the single most important principles in terms of our spiritual transformation. That there is a massive difference between trying to do something and training to do it. It was the rage some years back to have a bracelet that you wore with WWJD on it to remind you every time you looked at the, your watch or something, what would Jesus do? And, and it was noble, and I think it may have made a huge difference to a lot of people, but the point was that you were trying hard to, to do something. And no matter how hard I try, I cannot run a marathon at this point in time. I just can't. But if I take the time to set up a program to organize my life around that goal, that principle, that issue, and I train religiously, there is the possibility, I will still have to try, but there's the possibility that I will actually run it, that I'll actually do it. I regret terribly the fact that 
When I was in my early teens, my parents bought me a guitar. And I was gung-ho for all of six hours. <clears throat> no, not quite. It was a sense of, I wanted to do this thing. But there was a desire to be able to play like the guys that I'd heard. I wanted to play like Simon Garfunkel or Cat Stevens in those days. I went and bought the, the, it was a big thick thing like this of Cat Stevens songs. Do you know his, his chords are so complicated that I couldn't play one. And so here I am today, unable to play the guitar in the way that I would have been. Had I just played five minutes a day since I was 14. And that's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not that we are called every day to just try hard. It's that we organize our lives around a certain set of disciplines that we train ourselves to become who God wants us to become. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? We all run. We all run. Um, Gordon Fee, the commentator who is the most respected commentator of 1 Corinthians, is absolutely convinced that Paul was in and around Corinth in about 51 AD because in that year there were the Corinthian Games. And they were second only to the Olympic Games in, in Greece in those days. And in AD 51, he, he ruminates that uh, Paul was probably in Corinth because his skills as a tent maker would have been necessary. There was a need for hotel accommodation and he would have been busy. Anyway, what he says about this passage is that Paul uses the analogy of what the Corinthians would have been completely and utterly aware of. The focus around the whole thing of the games. And what he says in this passage that we just read is that people who are competing in the games are in essence needing self-control and doing it to just receive what is, what is known as that, a laurel wreath and a, per a perishable crown. And so they would cry. Sorry. Interruption. Sorry. <laughs> so we we are looking at a uh, an unimaginable sense of that we are part of the kingdom. We, we have been, God has called us and he's gathered us into himself and he says, whatever my mission is, I give that mission to you. And the way that he dealt with his disciples was he called them to himself, just as he's called each one of us in the room. And he said to them, follow me. And what he did is he took them along with him when he did stuff and they saw what he did and then he said to them, now you go and do it. They were apprentices, disciples. And what the thing about being a disciple was, when I worked with Nestle, they were 
in those days, we still had a full apprenticeship program. And I was responsible for about 200 apprentices that we had in the factory, from boilermakers to fitters to um, all sorts of different uh, kind of skills that were being learned. And these guys would come in. They were all men in those days. But these guys would come in, and they would be shown how to do something. And then they would have to do it with supervision. And then they would have to do it on their own, unsupervised. And there was this process by which they were trained to do a thing. And you were trained by being involved and by doing it. A respect, I think, for the difference between trying and training is key to understanding how God is going to shift us from one place to another in the development of our lives and our coming to maturity. We have, in a sense, a almost magical understanding that when it comes to the gift, I mean the fruit of the Spirit, we just have to sort of stand in a position like this and God will just dump it all on us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. All those things are essentially stuff he's just going to pour into our lives and suddenly we will be patient. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. And let me just tell you how I think it works. And that's really... The trying versus the training is, is, is a foundational thing, but this is what I think happens. When we try to understand what God's role in this whole process is, in Romans 9, verse 16, Paul writes to the Roman church and he says this So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's interesting. Here is a passage where he's almost contradicting himself, where he's saying, you can run, but it doesn't really matter whether you run. It's God's mercy that's at stake. It's God gives to whom he wills. Whereas in Corinthians, we've just read, we better have some sort of self-discipline because everybody who, who's going to run needs to be disciplined enough to actually run so that you get the prize. He speaks to Timothy and he says exactly the same thing. I've run the race. I've got the prize. I've done all my thinking. Thanks be to God. What's the difference here? Well, I think there's another image I think that is helpful at this point. Um, I know that there is a huge regatta of cows annually, but the, the race that I know the best is the Cape to Rio. Race, the ocean race that takes place, that used to take place every second year. And these yachts would come from all over the world, and it was a festival in Cape Town where the boats would start arriving and it would be in the newspapers, and there would be these um, parties and banners. It was, a, it was such a festive thing. And all these boats would come and get themselves ready, and they were different classes, so they were ones this size and one that size, and they were handicapped. And most of us had some idea of what was going on in the small process. And then there would be the, the bang, and they would go across Table Bay Harbor, and all the sails were splendid because there'd normally be plenty of room in that area. 
and off they would go. And then you would mark and chart and you'd see them go. They didn't go straight from Cape Town to Rio. Never. What they did is they left Cape Town Harbor and then they went straight north as, as hard as they could up the South African west coast, past the Namibian west coast, past Angola. And at some point, that was the decision, the judgment, the discernment that they made. They, they tapped to the west, but they still kept going north, northwest. And then they would reach an apex that was really sometimes quite high. And there was this jockeying position as you watched the yachts that were uh, um, kind of coming first and then someone would seem to overtake it. It was, it was fantastic. We used to love it. The reason that they went north instead, instead of going straight west was because in the middle of the southern Atlantic is a, a spot where the winds circle around, but there's this, there's this huge chunk of space where you can easily become becalmed, where you can actually sit for days with the sea like gods going absolutely nowhere. And if you are a racing dog, that's not the kind of thing you want. <laughs> a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night and he has this encounter with Jesus and he's talking about uh, all, all the things that are deep uh, he's passionate about. And Jesus says to him, basically, you need to be born again. You need to be born. And he says, but how can I go back to my mother's womb? What are you talking about? And then there's an interesting passage where Jesus says to him, chapter 3, He says to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I say to you, you must be born. And then he says this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not where it is, you do not know where it has come from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, when you watch these yachts in Cape Town Harbor at the yacht base, these magnificent vessels that had been kitted and cleaned and were at the peak of their working condition, and these sailors who were uh, primed, who had trained, who had spent hours and years in preparation for this race. And they got the rigging right, and the sails were all folded correctly, and they made sure that they had all the food that they needed. Most of them had two radios, one as a backup. Most of them had two batteries, one as a backup. Because they were prepared. And they trained and organized their lives. And there were times when they would slip out the harbor and they would check that everything was in, in working order. But they had trained for that moment. That when the gun went off, the cannon actually went off, and you heard this boom across the whole table basin, they were ready. They were ready for the race. But 
they can do absolutely nothing with all that training except get ready. They were completely and utterly dependent on the wind blowing. If there had been absolutely no wind, these yachts would have just been bobbing in Cape Town Harbor. There would be nowhere to go. We are called to be disciples. We are called to make sure that we organize our lives in such a way that we are focused on the kingdom and what God wants and desires from us. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? That's how we organize our lives. In the yard over the last two times we've met, we've spoken about fasting and various other disciplines of the faith have come up. Those disciplines are not so that you can say, tick, I fast, tick, I pray, tick, I do this, tick, I do that, as though it's some list of legalized things that you have to do in order to get the badge so that you get to heaven. It's nothing like that at all. It's training, it's preparation. It's getting our lives organized in such a way that we get rid of all the things that encumber us and that we are single-minded. You, you did not find on those yachts people who were unfit. They had got themselves physically in shape for a whole thing. And I think <coughs> when it comes to faith, we, we often have a sort of a a laissez-faire kind of attitude that, oh, you know, God will do it. And he does, and he's gracious, and it's wonderful. And since I'm saying you cannot engineer the move of God or the power of God, you can't twist God's arm, but you can be ready for it, that your sail is up, that when the wind blows, off you go. And you're in the game. Acts chapter 2 is, I think, a fabulous uh, illustration of this. I suppose you should really start in Acts chapter 1. But um, Jesus says, you shall, um, you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit, he said. You shall receive power, etc. And then it says, when he disappeared, this is what it says in verse 14. And all these were with one mind. It's, it's after the list of the disciples. All of these were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were getting themselves in a place where they were ready. They were trimming the sails. They were training for what was to come. And then on the day of Pentecost, it says they were all together in one place. There was a unity about what was going on. They had the ship ready to sail. They had done the training. And when the wind came and the fire came, it was like, bang, they were out the starting blocks. And off they went. We cannot engineer the move of God. We cannot force God to pour his spirit out on us. We cannot make anything happen 
It's not magic. Because the wind blows where it is. When he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, it blows wherever God desires it to blow. And if you read the history of revivals around the world, it's generally that there are people who are who are disciplined, they are disciples who have grown up and who give themselves to being ready for when the wind comes. And I really think that in a world where we have seen so much shaking loose through a pandemic, where we have seen the world economically starting to be turned on its side with the war in Ukraine, and we do not know what is around the next bend in the river. I think God is calling the church to say to them, guys, you need to be ready. You need to have your, your wits about you. You need to be discerning where God is working. What's going on? What does it look like? How do I get ready? How do I shape my life with these disciplines to be a disciple who is actually ready to win the wind goes? I'm in the game. We spoke a few weeks ago about having a go. And yes, that's important. It is really important that we are willing to step out in faith, to step out of the boat. But we do that because we are discerning. There's a gentle breeze here. There's someone in front of you that needs to know the love of God, that Jesus has rescued them and sent them, um, you or me, to show them the light, to teach them about the way. Last thing. We're not on our own. So it's the training versus trying thing, and it's the it's the, the preparedness that the wind blows and being ready for that. And the last thing is from Hebrews 12, and we all know this passage. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, since we have so great a part of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Yes or no? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We focus very often on fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, the, the author, the perfecter, the, the leader in our faith. And that's great. It's true. It's right. We need to fix our eyes on him. But the pivot between these two verses is that we run with endurance the race that is set before us. We prayed for Derek earlier on, and we, we thank God for the endurance that Derek has shown and God has given him, embraced him. But Derek still has to run. Derek, there's no let up, I'm afraid. You've got to keep running. We've got to all keep running. And there are times when we flag and we need to hold one another's arms up. There are times when, because we are, we have this huge cloud of witnesses, there is all of history that goes before us. And then there is this family, brothers, sisters, who we, 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 we need at times to say, guys, I'm, I'm, I need help. Pray for me. Support me. Encourage me. Because we have to keep running. The only time we stop is when we actually stop. I read a great C.S. Lewis quote this week about the mangled 
trying to put it directly, but essentially what he says is all of this is a shadow of the joy when we pass through that doorway over the threshold of death into something that will be absolutely, it will blow our minds. It will be the fullness of everything. Training this triumph and being open to the fact that God's and being ready for the fact that God's spirit is busy blowing, strongly in places, gently in others, and saying, let's support each other, let's be able to encourage one another to run with endurance this race that is set before us. Can I pray for us as a general prayer this morning that this will be who we are, that we wouldn't be flabby, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, self-centered believers, but that we would cast off every encumbrance and organize our lives around the, the, the desire to see God's kingdom.